All right. Good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to study God's word with you. So I hope you got one of these and you go ahead and turn it on or open it up to the book of James chapter two. All right, James, continuing our study, walking through this letter. I'm going to pick up right where we left off a couple weeks ago. James chapter two, starting in verse one, and I'll read through verse seven. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? We'll read some of the following verses as we make our way through our study here this morning. In 2008, a biography was written about the late great evangelical New Testament scholar, George Eldon Ladd. The biography was entitled, A Place at the Table. Subtitled, George Eldon Ladd and the Rehabilitation of Evangelical Scholarship in America, which probably doesn't sound like a page turner to most of you, especially given that subtitle. But what's interesting about the biography is what it says about this great evangelical scholar's internal contradictions. There was a paradox about the life of George Eldon Ladd. He was one of the greatest scholars, perhaps the greatest New Testament scholar of his generation. In the middle of the 20th century, he made a massive mark. I think one of the finest New Testament scholars today, a guy by the name of Tom Schreiner, who teaches at Southern Seminary, Tom Schreiner says, when I first read George Eldon Ladd's Theology of the New Testament, he said, my life was changed. He said, it was like a wrecking ball. It thrilled my soul. 784 pages of soul-thrilling wonder. However, the biography uh, about Ladd shows that he was ambitious for human approval. Notably, he was ambitious for the approval of the larger scholarly community, including liberal theologians, in some cases, who denied the core tenets of the gospel. And in the process of writing and researching and all of these things, he ignored his family. It was all about writing, it was all about publishing, and it was all about getting this magnum opus, 784 page work completed. And after he completes this massive work, he just waited for the ovation from the galleys of academia. And he ended up being commended by evangelicals and he ended up being ridiculed by Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. And the absence of the applause of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale ruined his life. He turned to alcohol, 
He fought against and became very, very bitter and angry against friends and family alike, all because, to borrow from the book, he craved a place at the table of what he considered to be true academic greatness. James seems to be picking up on similar tendencies in the lives of Christians where we sometimes lavish kindness on people whose friendship might do me good, whose friendship or presence might demonstrate that I matter. It's kind of reflected greatness. If we can get around great people, it reflects back on us. People whose advocacy stands to get the ball of opportunity bouncing in the direction of my ambitions. And that's what James seems to have his finger on that very issue. So growing up as a, a kid in New Orleans, um, uh, the people in the church that my dad pastored talked a lot about, prayed a lot about revival. That's not a word that you're super familiar with. Revival is just basically the concept of, of God breaking into some place in the world and turning everybody around, just turning hearts in his direction. And revival often when it happens in church history, it's just thousands of people, maybe entire cities become followers of Jesus. It's massive change. And so we prayed a lot about that. We talked a lot about God reviving. And, and I had an idea, even as a kid, I had an idea about how revival could happen because I thought, the two greatest musicians in the world, in my kid mind, the two greatest musicians in the world were Carmen and Michael Jackson. Um, and Carmen was already a believer, so we were halfway there. Like, we literally just needed one more. Because, again, in my mind, if Michael Jackson became a follower of Jesus, all of my friends would get saved. And maybe the world, right? I mean, it's just like somebody just needs to do this. Somebody needs to get around this guy, right? Um, which, okay, follow that to its logical conclusion. You follow it through. And that means, in my concept of things, whatever Christian happens to be providentially placed near Michael Jackson circa 1989 needs to not fumble the ball. Needs to say the right things, needs to be the right way, needs to keep the conversation going because if Michael Jackson gets saved, it's, it's a game changer for everything, right? And James's concern here in chapter two is that when Christians honor or alternately dishonor on the basis of wealth, intellect, celebrity, race, prominence of society, Instead of bearing the king's image, we just look more like the world. That's what James is saying. And so for James, this admonition really begins on a note of tragedy. Tragedy, a parable of partiality. And it starts with this command. You see there in verse one, do not show favoritism. The word favoritism here in the original language literally means to receive the face of someone to receive someone according to their face. That is, to look on outward appearances, to look on the things that are external to the naked eye and make judgment calls about whether they'll be received or not received. And he says, you see in verse one, the language that's used there, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like James is talking about this zero-sum game. It's like he's talking about mutually exclusive options where 
if you hold on to the faith, you will not be showing favoritism. And if you are showing favoritism, you are not holding on to the faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. In other words, like James is gunning for this idea, our welcome reveals our definition of glory. What are true, that is our functional definition, not the one we say in Sunday school, the functional, real definition of glory. And I pick up on glory because that's the word that James uses. You see in verse one, the word glorious, Lord Jesus Christ. That term glorious actually in the original language in which the New Testament was written, that word occurs at the end of the sentence. In other words, it could be more literally translated this way. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the glory. Jesus is the glory in the church. But look right after that in verse two. Right after he talks about the glory of Jesus Christ, he says, so, go with me, imagine a scenario. Somebody comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. And so here, James starts meddling And if you've not already picked up on it, you're going to pick up on it. The more we walk through this letter, James is not afraid to meddle where the church needs to repent, where the church needs to change. And so he's basically saying this idea. The church knows the glory of Jesus and holds it fast in verse 1, but somehow the church is dazzled by what in verse 2? Rings and robes, outward appearance. Verse 2. Someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. So two people walk in, and if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and then you say to the poor person, stand over there, James says, now we got a problem. James addresses this issue, and what's he doing? He's identifying this long and storied human habit of trading glory for shiny things. Trading glory for what meets the eye, the natural eye of man. Our our welcome reveals our definition of glory. And second, our welcome reveals our view of God. Rich person comes in, everybody fawns over that person. Identifiable person, maybe a cultural mover and shaker, walks into the church, everybody sees that person. Poor person comes in, they're shuffled off to the side. Right? They, they don't make us look presentable. Not this particular morning with uh, this, the big name person or whatever walks into the room. We've got to shuffle off the other people. The problem is stated. James says, I'll tell you what the sin is in verse 4. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he's identified their motives behind what they're doing in distinguishing between the one who has wealth or prominence or power and the ones who don't. And if you ask the question, what was motivating these partiality impulses, these favoritism impulses, it's basically this, this idea that if we cozy up as a church or Christians, if we cozy up to a few powerful people, maybe things won't be so hard. So again, in my uh, hometown of New Orleans, there was a rich guy everybody knew about when I was a kid, and his name is Al Copeland. Uh, and he started Popeye. You know, love that chicken from Pop. That's, that's Al Copeland. And he's also got restaurants throughout the city called Copeland's. And if you drove, not true today, but most of my childhood, if you drove down Interstate 10 westbound through the city and you get like around Clearview Causeway area and you look out your right window, 
you would see Copeland's showroom. You could see it from the interstate. And it was this massive glass front. And inside, you'd look in there and you'd see his latest boats, racing boats, Copeland plastered on the side. You'd see his latest installments in his fleet of Lamborghinis and cars. Right, he flaunted his wealth all over the city. So imagine, to so climb into the little church I grew up in. 80 people on a big Sunday, right? 80 people gathered in New Orleans. And imagine that our little church was trying to just get a piece of property from the city so we could expand and build onto our building and make it a little bit bigger. And we can't get a meeting with the powerful people. And into the room on a Sunday morning, here comes Al Copeland. Well, now the outcomes can change. Copeland knows the people who are in the room. Copeland knows the people who are at the table. If Copeland comes to faith, look, let's just make sure the greeting team gets this one right. Look, Mr. Copeland needs to have an amazing worship experience here at Calvary Temple this particular morning. And it stands to bless the whole church if Mr. Copeland has a good experience this morning. James is saying, that's what's going on. You think about how James pivots to theology here. So think about, back up from, from just James 2 specifically, and think about how God presents himself in the Bible. Throughout scripture, there's this repeating refrain, and you hear it over and over. There is no partiality with God. You hear it in a number of different places. You hear God is no respecter of persons. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, massive moment in the Old Testament. New nation of Israel, just about to enter into the promised land. God is preparing them. He says, when you go in, I want you to shine his lights. I don't want you to be a reflected image of the world around you. I want you to reflect my image. And so he's preparing their hearts. And here's what God says to them. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. This is theology the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. And so he moves seamlessly in the Bible from the vertical to the horizontal, from theology to social interactions. Remember what God said to Samuel. He said, you're a kingmaker. You're not just a prophet, you're a kingmaker, and I want you to tap the right shoulder. You're gonna stand in front of a bunch of people. They're candidates for kingship, but make sure you don't tap the wrong one because your eyes are gonna lead you the wrong way. And here's what God said. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected those. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the character of God. God says, don't be like you, be like me. Don't be like them, be like me. For James, for us, reading this, for us, bestowing favor on the basis of appearance or clout or social status denies the very character of the God we profess to worship. Here we are, 
as a church, we're in year two of Too Strong, which is all about going strong to our community, representing Jesus, speaking the gospel with our words, uh, adorning the gospel by our lives and by our example. We've been talking about it all year long, right? James is about living our faith in real life. That's the name of this series as we walk through the letter that he wrote. But James, there are missional implications bristling underneath every verse in this letter. Every problem James addresses here is a potential threat to the advance of the gospel, a potential threat to the mission of the gospel. In other words, when Christians diss the poor in order to curry favor with those who blaspheme the name, James says, it's going to hurt the mission. You climb into the situation and say, well, why would they do that? What would motivate them to do that? Well, again, remember their situation. We've talked about this in the previous weeks. These are people who've been scattered by persecution. They've lost their houses. They've lost their livelihoods. They're starting up their businesses in a brand new place. They don't know people here. They don't have connections here. They could very much reason this way. It's a persecuted people reasoning this way. Flatter a powerful foe and you might end up with a powerful friend. So let's catch this person coming in the front door and make sure we get this right. And here's what James says. Yeah, but when you did that, you flipped your allegiance. When you did that, when you gave VIP experiences on the basis of wealth, you flipped your ultimate allegiance and you traded glory for robes and rings. A theology of mission asks a pointed question. How can we call the world to behold Christ's glory when the emblems of worldly greatness still dazzle us. Let me say that again. How can we call the world to see Christ's glory when the emblems of worldly greatness still dazzle us? James, as you already know by now, is not one to pull punches. It's one of the things that maybe you love about, I love it about James. He asked, okay, real talk, what kind of glory is this church actually recognizing? And then James says, real talk, what view of God is this church actually proclaiming? By what it does, not the statement of faith, not the brochure, I wanna see in church. Who'd you make sit up front? Who'd you make find a seat somewhere else? We move from tragedy, the problem of partiality, to family, the people God has chosen people God has chosen. That chosen language is what features here and family language features here. Look at it. Verse five. Listen, my dear family, brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you, so you see how he's contrasting. This is what God did and this is what you did. God went this, God zigged and you zagged. You have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Now, let's just call attention to this reality lest we misinterpret and read too much into what's going on here. James is not teaching that wealth is a sin. He's not teaching that outward beauty is a sin or cultural influence 
is a sin. There are many wealthy believers who are commended in the pages of scripture. There are wealthy homeowners in the book of Acts, like Lydia, for example, and others who often allowed their large, spacious homes to be used as meeting places for Sunday worship, for Lord's Day worship. It's important, so in light of that, to let James completely fill out his profile of the person he describes as the rich person. So what does he say about the person or the group labeled rich? He says in verse six, they oppress Christians and drag you into court. That's not Lydia. That's not believers who have been blessed with wealth and who are generous toward the kingdom. That, so that's not describing her. They, next phrase, they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you. So what does that mean? They blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you. Well, think about baptism. What's the name that's invoked over believers when they go down in death and up in resurrection? They're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are immersed into the name. And James says, these particular people, they blaspheme the name into which you have been submersed, your identity. So when James calls these people brothers and sisters, again, he's using the imagery of family. Think about family. Think about spiritual family. In the church, you don't pick your family. God does. And, and note what James says here. Has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? And this wasn't just necessary for the audience that was reading the book of James. This is all over the New Testament. This was Rome's way, right? And so the church, Christians, people newly formed in Christ had been puffing the secondhand smoke of the empire. This is the way that they saw things, right? Churches like Corinth, for example, where some of the Christians, it's like they looked around and they thought, you know what we need? We need more awesome people here and less of the people who actually showed up. <laughs> that's what Corinth, that's how Corinth sized up gathered worship on Sunday mornings. C.S. Lewis, the great defender of the faith, was converted from atheism and he was a literary scholar, I mean, a, a genius. He said this as a young Christian, so he says, I've become a follower of Jesus and I go to church and here's, here's what I saw. I disliked very much their hymns. <laughs> which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. <laughs> Tell us what you really think. <laughs> but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, <laughs> were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. And James says, when you gather on Sunday for worship, just look around and you know what you're gonna see? Look who God chose, us. Not the powerful, not the mighty, not the cultural movers and shakers. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Where's James getting some of this? Well, again, remember who James is. The author of this letter, his older half-brother, 
is Jesus Christ. And his older half-brother, Jesus, preached his most famous sermon in which he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Paul would say to the Corinthian Christians in his letter, he said, Listen, I know when I came to you, I know what's already popular in this culture. What you really want and crave in your natural fallen impulses is what you want are two things. You want impressive intellects and you want power encounters. And he said, the Jews want miracles and signs. The Greeks want wisdom and oration and rhetorical skill. What we did is preach Christ crucified, which made both of you angry. Satisfied, neither crowd. Paul says to Corinth, so here's how it shook out. Here's what we taught. We taught Jesus Christ hanging on a cross for your eternal redemption. But you guys want to argue over who gets to speak in tongues the most? And who has the gifts of prophecy to wow those around them? Essentially what you've done, Corinth, you walk past the dying mediator presented you in the gospel who makes sinners right with God forever, but the sermons need to entertain you? Now James says to his audience, so you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, and you still think that what you need the most is Al Copeland walking in and advocating with the powerful on your behalf. We deny the gospel when we pander to the powerful and foster divisions based on worldly distinctions. And so we move from tragedy, a parable of partiality, to family, the people God has chosen, and finally to royalty, the ethic of Christ's kingdom. And you see, he's using this language of royalty. I love this statement that was made by Jeffrey Myers in his commentary on the book of James. He writes, this is a rejection of the worldly assumption that power is accumulated by savvy backscratching or the service and charity are only tokens to be spent in exchange for future considerations from those whom we put in our debt by our good works. In declining to curry the favor of the rich and powerful and refusing to buckle at any threat of death and violence, the followers of Jesus broke the power of both the carrot and the stick that every human empire has always used to sustain its own existence. That's a mouthful, but that's awesome. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. Verse eight. Indeed, Here's the royalty language. If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James is saying a royal edict has come down from the glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, our God's royal son who sits on his royal throne and the policies of his kingdom have been laid bare. And it's this, love your neighbor, not based on his appearance, not based on what he can give you back. This is, this is royalty. My wife, Paula, and I just finished uh, watching The Crown. And it's amazing how quickly I became a snob who knows a lot about the royal family. 
I, I didn't know two things about the royal family before we started watching. Matter of fact, when Prince Harry uh, comes in as a child into the story, I didn't know that that's the guy who grows up and marries the girl from Suits. Like I, I didn't realize that there was a connection there at all. And I, so now I've come so far in my knowledge, like I'm, I'm, I'm very condescending about it, I, about my knowledge of <laughs> all things British royalty. It's five minutes old knowledge, but now I know everything, right? And here's James, and he's writing to these believers hounded by persecution, and he says, there's a new kind of royalty, and it's not like anything you've seen in the Roman Empire. This is not Rome's way. This is an upside-down kingdom. Throw away everything you understand about power and greatness and take this on board. The king has come. Jesus Christ came into the world. The eternal son of God became man, born in weakness, born in poverty, nursed by his mother, Mary. He came not in order to seize a throne, but to bear a cross. He's crucified, he's buried, He's raised again on the third day, victorious over sin and Satan and death and hell, and now he is seated in the position of absolute authority over heaven and earth. He's not just our king, he's the king. He's over all the nations, and our royal king has spoken from his holy mouth the royal edict, and the deepest policy for those who would live under his rule is love your neighbor as yourself. And don't notice what they were wearing when they came in. The church is marked by the depth of its love, not the reach of its power. God's kingdom announces that there is an inverse relationship between worldly glory and true glory, between worldly power and true power. You think about it for a second. Maybe you noticed when you walked into the room this morning, if you didn't, then maybe look around. If God chose for salvation on the basis of worldly glory, honestly, who in this room would have been chosen? I mean, on, on Twitter, you can do this thing where you can see what's trending. And so on Friday, while I'm preparing this sermon, I went just to see who's trending on Who's everybody looking up? Who's everybody saying, oh, where are they at? What are they doing? So I go on Twitter and I look and all the names that are trending were athletes and politicians and artists. And you know what I noticed? I wasn't trending. <laughs> you're laughing, but your name wasn't on there either. <laughs> you're not trending. People aren't looking for you. They're not wondering, what's she think? What's he think? What's Matt think? They don't care. Doesn't, doesn't mean God never saves people who are a big deal, but he never saves them in their big dealness. Jesus comes to the streets of Jerusalem, the incarnate God, and those who thought, Messiah's coming, we've got all these scriptures in the Old Testament that say he's coming, and when he comes, he's gonna start glad-handing us. He's gonna come and he's gonna start handing VIP passes and backstage passes to us, and so Jesus comes and he's announcing who he is, the 
kingdom of God is here breaking into the world. And they come running up to Jesus, announcing and flashing their badges, their badges of moral goodness and moral righteousness. And Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. Show me where the sinners are. That's who I came for. Jesus said, the physician doesn't come for the people who are already well. The physician comes for those who are sick. Show me where the sick are. You've obviously got your stuff together. Show me where the rest of the people are, the broken ones. And on every page of the Gospels, what do you see? You see in Jesus, the living God, God incarnate, opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. And God, Jesus, flips the script and he tells the Pharisees, hey, sit or stand somewhere in the back. Prostitutes, tax collectors, here. There's, there's room for you right here on the first row. <laughs> Shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, James's older brother, would tell a parable of his own. And in that parable, he talks about a man who, if you were looking, judging from outward appearances, this person's entire demeanor uh, just shouts poverty. Looks like he hadn't eaten in days, hadn't had a drink in days. Parts of his clothes so tattered, you could see naked parts of his flesh underneath. And on top of that, he's ill, he's coughing, he's spluttering. This guy walks through a crowd and they part like the Red Sea. Nobody wants to be, everybody averts their eyes from this particular guy. He's perceived as a public nuisance. He ends up getting thrown in jail. And then Jesus flips the parable and he says, when you came to the jail with food to feed him, and when you came to the jail with water for him to drink, and when you came and you put clothes to cover his nakedness, Jesus says, I was the poor man. No wonder, 10 years later, his younger brother James, after seeing Jesus crucified in abject misery and poverty and then raised to glory, little James writes a book and says, wait, you made the poor people sit in the back? Have you completely forgotten the story, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The king's edict came down. There's a new kind of royalty now. Jesus is real glory who came among us. And the king's edict is love your neighbor and we bear the king's image. And so James doesn't leave it to the reader to figure out what to do next. He says, verse 12, speak and act in accordance with what you've been hearing right here. I need you to pick up what I'm putting down. He's saying speeches and actions need to come into line with the royal edict. James wants this as the signpost over the church. Mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs. So Jesus, again, Jesus spoke this parable during his earthly ministry about about people who received mercy. He spoke a parable about someone who received mercy for this massive, massive debt he never could have possibly paid back. And that person, having been forgiven of his massive debt, turns around and squeezes the life out of the person who owes him a small debt. And the point was to say, an unmerciful spirit reveals a heart that has not really grasped God's mercy. And so James here says, church, when you show mercy and love to your poor brothers and sisters, not for what they can pay you back, you become a congregation whose life announces the gospel. Recording artists 
All Sons and Daughters came out some years back, wrote a song, and it's like an anthem. It's like an anthem, I think, that is similar to what James is praying for. And here are the words to that song. All the poor and powerless and all the lost and lonely and all the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy. And all the hearts who are content and all who feel unworthy and all who hurt with nothing left will know that you are holy. And all will sing out hallelujah and we will cry out hallelujah. Brooke Hills, this, this might not sound like you're straight up the middle going strong missional message but it's about as missional as it gets. How can we call the world to behold real glory in Christ when the emblems of worldly greatness still dazzle us? Friends, wherever it's needed, personally or corporately as a church, can we start the business of repenting and showing the world true glory, showing our city that mercy triumphs here, not because of any greatness we have or can muster up, but because we bear the king's image.